I would have to say my faith now is really a daily walk with Jesus. It's, it's fundamentally a part of everything I do on a daily basis, from prayer to meditation to my thought process to the people I'm around. It's just, it's, it's not every step, but I know he's there. And, uh, and I know that he's, he's something, someone that I can rely on and lean on all day, not just on Sunday, but all the way through the week. When I started this faith journey at Broadway, um, I prayed a scary prayer of God. I don't know what my talents are. I have no idea what my talents are, but use them to help Broadway's mission. And I think that's been teased out over the past 15 years. Another thing that happened in my spiritual growth actually is, uh, is Pastor Adam was, was um, anointing people at, at, at one time. And, and, I, and I prayed that scary prayer. I asked him, I said, help me have a daily walk with Jesus. And, and he anointed me. And that was a very powerful moment in my journey because after that, I felt like that triggered something. Something happened within me where I started really relying on, on my faith in Jesus on a day-to-day -day basis, which is something that I didn't think was possible. Yeah, so uh, I work for a biotech company, so I sell cancer medications <clears throat> to, uh, to hospitals in, in Tennessee, Kentucky, and Indiana. And it's, the, the question's a great question because quite often it plays a role when nobody even knows that it's playing a role. Uh, I find myself quite often walking into situations where I'm praying for someone or pr so there's a diagnosis that's made. And, and even though I'm, I'm selling a monoclonal antibody, I'm still praying for those people and I'm praying for the family and I'm praying for the doctors and the nurses and everybody. And there's just a, a kindness and a tenderness to, to throwing that into the equation as well. And not just thinking about a patient as a number, but thinking about a patient as one of God's children. Pastor Lewis came up to me and he said, hey, we need some folks on the camera. So I became a cameraman on the, uh, on the live production of the 930 service. And uh, before that, when, when Lewis approached me, he said, I said, I, I have no business doing this. This is not something that I'm comfortable with, nor do I have any skills at this. And Lewis said, don't worry, I'm a scary judge of talent. I didn't know what that meant at the time, but it's actually turned into one of my favorite things that I do at Broadway. And I love being behind the camera. I love for folks who can't be at Broadway to be able to be a part of the service too. So it's a really cool experience to be a part of that and to see what goes on behind the scenes. When uh, Alpha actually has an Alpha marriage class and, uh, and we were asked to lead that. <clears throat> and at the beginning, again, it was out of our comfort zone. We'd never done this before. And, uh, and we asked, what's it going to look like? And, and we thought it would be maybe three couples, four couples for the first, uh, for the first time. And it actually ended up being, I think 70, 70 to 80 people. We moved it from, we had to move it from the cup into the Mac. And, uh, and that was a real growth moment because at the time I thought it was going to be leading around a table to leading in front of the Mac. And, uh, and that was, uh, a bit nerve-wracking for someone who was just beginning their their growth and uh and at the beginning we had to kick off with a prayer and i'd prayed in front of my family prayed in front of my extended family but never in front of 80 people and 80 people that i really didn't know 
So it was, I was a bit nervous and I was going to take one week and Andy, my wife was going to take the second week. So I practiced into my phone. I, I, I wrote it down and we kicked off week one. I was very nervous. My hands were shaking, but I made it through, got back to the table and I was finished. And I was like, okay, that was great. Okay, it's over. I'm so glad it's over. So fast forward to week two. Uh, that's when my wife does the, does the prayer. She's got, she's going to kick it off with prayer. And I bow my head and she comes off with this brilliant prayer. Everything about what we're going to be doing that night and, and how we're, we're, we're blessing the folks who are in the room. And it was just impeccable. It was, it was like she had done it a hundred times and she, uh, and she gets back to the table and I said, honey, that was incredible. I mean, you were natural. She goes, Oh no, the prayers are in the back of the book. So I didn't know that there was a prayer in the back of the book. I suffered through that for seven days. And then she found out that, uh, that the prayers were in the back of the book. So that's another, uh, pro tip for anybody who's growing within Broadway. Uh, Always look in the back of the book for the prayers for the leader's guide. They'll be there. I feel like encouragement is a spiritual gift of mine that I wasn't aware of. Um, I think I'm a natural encourager, a natural coach. So I like to see people get from point A to point B. And I think that that's really been something that uh, I didn't know could be developed. And I didn't know how much people truly needed encouragement. I really didn't. I just thought that that worked in the business world. I didn't understand how much people on a day-to-day -day basis need encouragement. Let's thank Scott for telling his story. Appreciate that very much. And you know, some things about that, re the reason why, a couple reasons why uh, we asked him to tell his story. One is because I think uh, where he ended uh, as an encourager, I think of Scott as that kind of person. We think of the kind of stories we want to tell. We want to tell the, the legit story. The, you know, like we found someone who is, this has really become a part of his life over the course of time. But what I also love about that is that there were some key moments you, that you heard, but there wasn't one big dramatic moment. And so I, I think it's important to tell both kinds of stories. We have, sometimes we have key pivotal moments in life that change everything, and sometimes it's just incremental along the way. And Scott's story is an example of just continuing to say yes, just a little bit, stretch a little bit, stretch a little bit, stretch a little bit, and find himself in a very different place than where he started. And I think that story is compelling. In fact, uh, we're committed in this series especially to telling stories, to telling stories, our faith story, as a part of the larger story of God, and finding in those stories uh, the, the compelling things that, that we want to be about. There's something to telling positive stories. There's something to, of, of telling of God's goodness. There's something to telling our stories of struggle that it draws us all in. And I think one of the key behaviors of a healthy church is that. Just telling our stories. Finding a context where we can do that and it's natural and we listen and we tell and point to what God is doing. Again, the story of scripture and, and our own stories as part of this bigger thing God is doing. So in this series, we're framing those stories around our vision. And today, that, the part of our vision that we come to is this, that we dream of a life-giving community of growth. Actually, the fuller statement says where hurts are healed, where faith is restored, and where people come fully alive. We're actually going to take each of those through this series, and we're going di to dig deeper into them, uh, where, where, uh, where hurts are healed, and faith is restored, and people come fully alive. Today, we're looking at the, the, the overarching idea that this is a process. That we're talking about a process that we're brought into 
that we hope is life-giving. We're going to hear uh, in a second about how the fullness of God is made available to people, and that's, that's the goal as we tell our stories. After the sermon last Sunday, one of our members came up uh, and uh, told me his story. And uh, he said, you know, this is so funny that this is the series. This is my story because I had had an experience that is exactly what we're talking about. He mentioned that he's, uh, well, that I knew that he was an assistant football coach. And he was talking about the head coach and a situation on the football team, a high school football team, local team. He told me how uh, after the the first game, it, it didn't go well. Uh, and they lost, and then, you know, a team is united until there's pressure, and then there was some, some, uh, uh, and, and that, that's pretty much a metaphor for everything right now, uh, and so uh, you think, okay, what are we going to do to bring it back together? Here, you've got to get the kind of season on track, and the coach, uh, being a good coach, could have done a lot of things, could have looked at tape and kind of gotten very technical uh, on Monday morning and could have maybe just made everybody run a whole b- bunch. You know, that's another strategy. Another strategy would be to, to try to inspire people and to, you know, come up with one of those kind of compelling coach uh, speeches. What he did instead was set everybody down and said, you know, I just think we need to come together. We don't know each other. We need to tell each other's stories. And they did. It was like uh, you know, a remember the Titans moment, what he described among the football team as people from diverse backgrounds, some born here and some born in other countries, people from different socioeconomic places told their story and as the team came together. You know, it's, it's said that for the most part, enemies are just people that we haven't heard their stories yet. There's something to tell in our stories and I think it's just a, it's a key behavior because what we're talking ultimately about is the story of God. And the intersection between that great story and my story. And it just doesn't get any more compelling than that. It doesn't get any more powerful than that. And it doesn't get any more real than that. It's just, we just sim- simply talk about how God is at work in our lives. Every once in a while, someone will sit down in my uh, office. They'll set up an appointment and they'll sit down and the first words out of their mouth are, I've never told this to anyone before. And when they do that, often I'll say, listen, I don't know what you're going to tell me, but here's what I already know. Your life is about to change for the good because you've had the courage to tell your story. And I think that happens not just in the pastor's office. I think that's turned loose in a powerful way in a life-giving community of growth, where in small groups or one-on-one or with a counselor or with a, a coach or with a spiritual director or in our families, when we have the intentionality and the courage to tell our faith stories. Today I want to suggest that we need desperately to be telling these stories. And I want to say that I think there are three stories, three kinds of stories that we absolutely need to be telling. Another way of thinking about this is that there are a lot of people who have found the way to tell bad stories. You know, like the bad news, right? Like, kind of like that job is kind of taken already, right? Like, people are signed up and waiting in line for that job. But who's going to hear the call to tell a different kind of story? And I think it's us, and I think if we do, it's going to be powerful. So, um, so let, let's get into that in, in the story of Isaiah. As we think about our own story and the story of Scripture and how this plays out. What I mentioned earlier is in this story of a prophet 750 years before Christ, we hear 
the bones, I think, of every story, the key components of every story that we ought to be telling. And uh, in fact, as we think about the fact that we should be telling that story, what we find in Isaiah 6, in Isaiah 6 uh, through 9, is just that. It's Isaiah telling his story. And you might think this would be in Isaiah 1 as we hear his call, but for some reason it's just stuck here, verses, or chapter 6 through 9, as he is, it's really his memoir. It's him telling his story. And, and whether that's his original call story or a key moment like Scott described along the way, he himself is telling it. And we find ourselves in th this story. He tells, I think, three kinds of stories in that. So let's look at it. The first is I think we need to t tell the story of God's presence. In other words, the most obvious thing about Scripture and maybe the most compelling thing about Scripture is that it is a, it is a story of God present in the world. Like, that's the thing. That's, that's what it's about. And maybe our biggest struggle is the question behind that is where is God in our lives or in our world? We need to tell the story of God's presence. And Isaiah tells that story of an encounter with God. He says, I saw God high and exalted, God's presence filling the temple. And you know, it's a strange story to our ears. It's a little bit odd. If someone kind of came to you and said, I saw this vision of God seated on the throne and these, uh, these living beings kind of around him and they were talking, if someone told you that, what would you say? We're going to find a doctor. We're going we're gonna to get you some help, right? But in the, the ancient world, this would have fit into a category of, of God encounters, a theophany, uh, in which God would be seated on a throne. And the, the, this would be, have been a little bit more of a normal, uh, special for sure, but, but fit into a category of things that someone would understand. These heavenly beings flanking him on both sides, uh, in this case, seraph, seraphs or seraphim, which means burning ones. Again, you have a vision of fire and, and heavenly beings. It is strange. And these fire creatures have six wings. With two, they fly. Two, they cover themselves. And with two, they cover their eyes because even they can't look at God. This is a story of God present in the world. And the, the clues are there. Isaiah sees the, the, the throne room and God, the robe of uh, of God's, uh, the, 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 the trail of God's robe fills the temple. And we find that God's presence fills the earth, and that's what the seraphim say. They call to each other, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. Meaning there's just no category for God, and the whole earth is full of his glory. This theme of a God who is in all his fullness also, also fully present is the theme of Scripture and is the, the, the theme that the New Testament picks up. John talks about this as well. In John 1, 14, in his introduction to Jesus, the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, and we have seen his glory. Now, in both of these stories, what I think what we, you know, our word, glory, like what, what do we do with that? How do, we, how do we kind of find our language in there? I think the word awesome kind of works, Though we messed that up too, right? We talk, call lots of things awesome. I did have an awesome taco, by the way, at the taco truck at the lip sync battle on Thursday night. There's no other word for it. It was awesome. But sometimes we overuse the word, don't we? Like, it, it is, it's an overused concept. And truthfully, awe is not a cultural value for us, I don't think. 
I think we would rather be cool. Like, yeah, we've got this figured out, rather than surprised and awed, right? So we use awesome, but I don't know if we mean it, and we don't really value the word uh, in, in, that, in that way. But John has no problem with that. He says, we have seen his glory, and it was awesome. It is the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father. And what's the next word? Full. There is a fullness to this. As we have the ability to tell the story of a God who's, who's awesome and yet present, transcendent but yet imminent. And, and as I said earlier, there are other people that are going to tell the other stories. They've got it covered. So who's going to tell this story of a God who is awesome and who is present? I mean, and you know, like uh, you would think we would be more awed than we are as a, as a culture. We have all kinds of technology, right? Like Scott Crutcher was about 10 times his normal size up there, right? It's pretty awesome. Uh, but maybe we're not so impressed. Bill Murray said, I'm not going to be impressed with technology until I can download food. <laughs> right? We just keep getting more and more capabilities, but we're less and less impressed. Or maybe it's the promise of the information age that we've all bought into, that we think if our heads are full, that our hearts will be too, but they're not, are they? We need... No, not, not more information, but transformation. We don't need our heads to be filled with more facts, but our hearts to be filled with more wonder. And it's there if we're willing to see it, and that story needs to be told. I didn't ask Martha if she, I could tell this story, but I'm going to, and I apologize. For, I don't normally do that. But we were talking the other night about pipe organs. Remember this? Is it okay? Okay. Um, we were talking about pipe organs the other night at dinner with, uh, with our, our group of friends, which, you know, of course, why wouldn't you, right, talk about pipe organs? But, um, like, if you've ever been into a service, we were talking about the National Cathedral, which I've never been to, but if you've ever been in a service with a real pipe organ, how many of you have been that? And what's it do? It, like, shakes your guts, right? Like, when they hit those low notes and, like, the floor shakes. That's, like, kind of what Isaiah is describing. The door, the thresholds of the doors shook as the, the, these creatures call back to each other of God's holiness. So Martha was saying that she went to somebody's house in Tennessee somewhere, which, you know, why wouldn't they have a pipe organ at their house? Um, and they, they were there for some reason. They said, hey, we've taken this pipe organ out of a church and we put it back up in our house. Do you want to see it? And the answer to that is always yes, right? And, um, and then uh, they said, do you want us to play it? And so Martha's in for a penny and for a pound, right? So he tells her where to stand and then plays this organ in like somebody's den, basically. Right? There's an element to the, our experience of God that needs to shake our guts a little bit if we're doing it right, if we let him. And somebody's got to tell that story, the story of God who's present. And awesome things happen when we do. How do we do that? Thank you for asking. I think there are some, some small ways. Like when you come home from wherever you go tomorrow after a day at work, I want you to think about the first story that you tell. Because if I'm honest and I'm confessional, and Jenny called me on this uh, a week ago, when I walk in the door, sometimes the first story I tell is the gripe story, right? It's just human nature. But we who hear a calling from God tell a different story. So be intentional about the first story that you tell when you come home at the end of the day. I know some families who sit around the table at dinner and talk about their God sightings. 
through the day and on a daily way incorporate this into their lives. A lot of times in meetings in the church, we'll start with glory sightings, where we've seen God at work. By the way, when I'm in a secular setting and we come to a, a, a meeting, I don't know how to do that exactly. You know, maybe not in the same language. And then I also, by the way, this is an aside, but I don't know how to end a meeting because in church we always pray, right? So in a secular setting, we're like, okay, I think we're done. What do we do? Bye. So, but we need to create settings where we can tell the God stories, however we frame that. I was a part of a small group experience one time where we told, each one of us told a story, and it was a story of a person, of an event, and a place that was significant to our spiritual walk, to our story. And what I was surprised about was not, I mean, I expected like we would all have somebody who was important, and I figured we would all have an event, but I thought the place, you know, a sacred place was almost like a throwaway, and it wasn't. When When I heard those stories, it was almost like that was the most compelling part. And as I reflect upon it, here's what I think, that it's not about the place. It's about the presence. I mean, this is a story of the God of the universe that is also fully present, and that's awesome. Let's tell that story, right? Let's find our path forward by telling that story. Okay, we're going to be here forever if I don't get to point two, which is that we need to tell the story of God's purpose, meaning we all have meaning and purpose in our life that comes from God. And this story in Isaiah ends on a call or a commissioning or a significant turning point in his life, a clearer sense of purpose, the voice from the throne saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And Isaiah says, me, me, pick me. And God gets him there. This sense of call sustained Isaiah for 40 years. He served for 40 years. And so that's a compelling story in itself. And um, that, that story, uh, that service was through some of the more trying times of Israel's history made me think of the, the honor being give, given to the queen in this last week. And I've heard this several times, her sense of duty from the beginning of life. And she said, I declare before you that my whole life, whether it be long or short, shall be devoted to your service. And as we look at that from, uh, from the rearview mirror, we see it's more powerful than we probably realized. And just, I mean, that was, she had a long run, Right? In a world where we want fast food and it flips over quickly and things change rapidly, that becomes a compelling story. So uh, stay in there and continue to find your purpose and live it out. Whether it seems big or not, whether people recognize it or not, it's, it's powerful. And as a church, we're going to continue to have those kinds of conversations. And so uh, on Wednesday night, we're going to start uh, a, a thing called Reaching Forward as we tell stories about our sense of what God is telling us now, moving toward missional clarity. We can't be everything to everybody, but we're going to try to be who we are in a way that takes the best of our life together and then offers that as a gift to the world to meet the the world's greatest needs. And I just have to believe that that even though that's pretty hard and, you know, like you little angels, attic ladies have been slaving over it and you're here uh, on Sunday morning, God bless you, by the way. It's not that, that the, the blood, sweat, and tears part of that is exhausting, but the story is compelling, isn't it? And so one of the things we'll say Wednesday night to kind of prep you, um, by the way, you can find this at broadwayunited.org forward slash reaching forward. Basically, it's, we're going to be in small groups, and we're going to talk about 
um, where we're going together. Um, we're going to talk about our gifts and our passions, and we're going to talk about the world's needs, and we're going to see what God says, and we're going to pray together. Pastor Laura said that um, at, at Greenwood, she announced it this way, we're going to just sit around tables and dream together. And someone heard that as we're going to sit around tables and drink together. Um, whatever it takes. So um, uh, one of the things we'll say on Wednesday night is this, that in times of challenge, we need two things. We need healing and we need wholeheartedness. And that wholeheartedness piece is what we mean by our sense of purpose. And now, strangely enough, having been through a disruptive time, is a time to bring clarity and hope through that wholeheartedness. Finally, we need to just tell the story of the process. Isaiah talks about God being present. He talks about finding a sense of call, but in the middle, there is a, there is a disconnect that is also part of each of our stories. And the, the, the bottom line is we need to tell the process as well. We need to tell that story of how God has got, got us from here to there, because none of us is going to get there without that, that time of disruption, that disconnect. Isaiah tells how he sees God, and the common understanding is that if you see God, you die. What he says, woe is me, I am ruined, the translation of that is literally, I'm a goner. He is not expecting life to continue at all, not to mention to, for life to the full to be the result. And so he says, I'm a man of unclean lips among a people of unclean lips. And we don't know if that means that he's kissed an idol and the people have too and so have broken the, the commandments. Or if he's senses that he's being called to speak, but how can my mouth make God's words? There's a disconnect. Someone has said Isaiah 6 is the, the, the reenactment of every single worship service. Because we all come in tr trying to gain a sense of God's presence, but then there's this disconnect. How does this work with me? Because I know me. And so the point is that God makes a way. God makes a way. In Isaiah 6, one of those burning creatures comes with a tongue from the altar, a coal, and puts it on his lips and atones for his sins and purifies him, and it's done. I mean, this is the story of Jesus. The New Testament announces that Jesus is that ultimate way for us. Romans 8 says, There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And this is not just some tongue from the altar, which is a compelling story. This is a person from heaven coming down to make the way. Because through Christ Jesus, Christ Jesus the law of the Spirit who gives life, has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. In Jesus, God makes a way. In Jesus, God makes the way between that sense of God's presence but the disconnect we have for where it leads to God's purpose. And it frees us up like Isaiah to say, here I am, send me. And that's what we want for every single one of us. To be a life-giving community of growth where that we, we're, we're standing up able now to say, here I am, send me into my family situation, into my work, into my sense of calling and purpose. And so we keep telling that story. We need to keep telling the story of the process. My own story is like Scott's. There wasn't one compelling big moment along the way, one big turning point. But here's what I say. The church gave my family a better story. 
Because in my story, there are narratives that are centered around alcohol abuse and addiction that continue to this very day. And I look at my life and I wonder, how are these people that I love still stuck in that? And how did I somehow, by the grace of God, not get stuck in that? And I, I also have in my family narratives that are centered around poverty in every sense of the word, material and spiritual poverty. I mean, I grew up on a dirt road and went, uh, went to college on a Pell Grant. And yet, as I looked at my story, that, those didn't seem like limitations, and I didn't know uh, growing up why. And then in my family, there are narratives around the, the political kind of story, the p- p- political narrative. I have Democrats on one side, my mom's side, and Republicans on my dad's side, and family gatherings were always fun. But more than that, I realized that there were people, you know, some, some, some people in my life, that, that was where, that's where they found their identity. And somehow, whether, whichever side it was, both sides, I, I realized growing up that somehow that wasn't taking in my life. And eventually I realized it was because what we prayed for Crin this morning, from the very first moments of my life, I was immersed in a different story, in a better story. And that's what we do together. We immerse ourselves in a better story and it begins to replace every other narrative, every other lesser story, every other less compelling defining story. So I want to uh, come to this scripture once again. I'm going to invite the band up as we uh, come to a close today. And uh, I want to find ourselves in that story. We're going to read Isaiah 6 again uh, meditatively through prayer. And I want you to think about, we're going to stop for a moment and talk about God's presence, think about God's, and reflect on God's presence in our lives, and we're going to reflect also on God's purpose in our lives, and we're going to reflect on the process of God working in us. And so if you would, just kind of find yourself in a, in a posture of prayer. As I read scripture to us, take a deep breath and find yourself in the presence of God. And as we hear this story, may you find your own story. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. And so we pause to reflect on God's presence in an area of our lives. What is one area where, if you reflect on it, you can clearly see God's presence, maybe in an unexpected way? Maybe it's just right there for you to reflect on if you'll see it. A part of your story that you would call awesome and a question, how might you tell that, convey that, tell that story to someone today or this week? Isaiah continues, Woe to me, I cried, for I am ruined. I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the king, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. 
and we, re- we pause to reflect on how God has done this for us in Jesus. On the way God is making in our lives to replace our story with a better story. And we reflect on how that might continue on in us simply as we lean into it, as we give thanks and accept the grace being given to us. Where do we need forgiveness? Where do we need healing? Where are we broken? And how can we see this as our defining story, that the one who was whole became empty so that we who are empty might be made whole. The one who was full of life experienced death so that we might have life to the full. And then Isaiah continues, Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am. Send me. And so we reflect on God's call on our life this week. Where is God about to send you? What do you need to say yes to now so that you can give yourself wholeheartedly to God's purposes? God, would you draw us up into this compelling story as we prepare to give in the offering and as those who are coming to be our ushers come forward, we offer ourselves to this better story, this defining story in you. And find that you are worthy of all that we have to give and more through your life, death, and resurrection. You now seated on the throne as the Lord of heaven and earth call to us and in this very moment we say here I am, send me we do so in offering our gifts and offering ourselves we do so singing your praise as an offering that rises to you so that we might find in you the enjoyment and fullness of life that you alone offer and that we might find our purpose as individuals and as a people offered freely and completely to the one who is worthy in whose name we pray, amen.